Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. My name is Allison Insero, Managing Editor of the American Journal of Managed Care. Since the first wave of COVID-19 began in the United States in late winter and early spring last year, healthcare workers and first responders have reported extreme amounts of stress. The Journal of Psychiatric Research recently published a study conducted in two counties in Utah and Colorado in late April and early May 2020 before that region experienced its first surge of cases. The survey of first responders, including police officers, firefighters, EMTs, and healthcare workers, found that they are at risk for psychiatric illnesses at severity levels higher than other national disasters, including 9-11 and Hurricane Katrina. On today's episode of Managed Carecast, we speak with Dr. Andrew Smith, a co-author of the paper and a faculty member at the Huntsman Mental Health Institute at the University of Utah School of Medicine. He is the founder and director of the Occupational Trauma Program and holds a joint appointment at the VA Salt Lake City Healthcare System as a health psychologist. So welcome to Managed Carecast, Dr. Smith. Can you describe your work, including the Occupational Trauma Program? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a clinical psychologist at the University of Utah, and uh, I'm the founder and director of the Occupational Trauma Program, and we, uh, we intend to study and treat the kinds of problems, stress-related problems that come up for folks who uh, experience trauma as an occupational hazard. That might include law enforcement officers, firefighters, healthcare workers, uh, primarily. So your study, which just came out in, uh, I think it's called the Journal of Psychiatric Research? Yes. Can you describe the study a little bit? I read that it looked um, at two counties, one in Utah and one in Colorado from April 1st to May 7th, when the numbers of COVID-19 cases there were still relatively low. The study that we designed really came out of a community need initially here through through my role uh, you know, directing the occupational trauma program, uh, local fire department reached out and said, we're seeing increases in what we think look like increases in distress. And this was about mid-March. And the question was posed, can you help us assess and evaluate how at risk we are as a, as a department, um, how at risk our personnel are for um, stress-related problems? And so uh, I went back to my team and we we kind of took a look at what we, we were already doing and said, yeah, we can study this. Uh, we can assess this. And um, we actually approached it from what you would call disaster mental health perspective. And that's a science that's about probably 30 or 40 years old. Uh, and what we're really interested in those kinds of studies is first kind of utilitarian questions. And those utilitarian questions look like who is at risk and what are the risk rates? So how, how risky are people for stress-related syndromes? And those could include depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress symptoms or, or acute stress symptoms, uh, alcohol use and, and circadian rhythm disruptions that represent themselves in insufficient sleep. So we went to the drawing board and, and built this study out of sort of the history of disaster mental health 
and then we look into uh, the research that existed in the wake of SARS and MERS. And we kind of combined those two things. And then the last piece that we wanted to combine was sort of the unique contextual features that uh, COVID represented. For example, uh, the social distancing pieces, the, um, the fact that this is pandemic spread globally worldwide, the disruptions in the economy that have caused undue burden for female caregivers who are also healthcare workers, for example. So, so we combine this sort of disaster mental health history with the uh, epidemiologic mental health history from, from SARS and MERS from previous epidemics, and then this sort of phenomenological contextual piece that's really what's unique to COVID-19 that we, if we don't include this, we won't do a very good job describing and identifying who's at risk. So that was the origin of the study. And we launched on April 1st. And in any study, so the study that was published, the first study out of these that was, that's been published is in the journal Psychiatric Research is a, is a cross-sectional snapshot of that first cohort, that first time point between April 1 and May 7. And as you said earlier, the, the rates of infection weren't very high in the Rocky Mountain West. So this was in El Paso County in Colorado and in Salt Lake County in Utah. Uh, and rates of infection weren't very high, but what was happening during this phase is we were watching the disease unfold in places like New York and Italy. And we would consider it kind of an anticipation phase. And this is a phase in which cases were extremely minimal on April 1st. And by May 7th, they were, Allison, somewhere over, you know, I can't remember off the top of my head, between two and 4,000 cases, I believe, in Salt Lake County. Um, so within that period of time. So your study hypothesized that psychiatric risks would rise in relation to four specific pandemic-related stressors. You know, you talked about how the origin of this is in, you know, disaster research. What were those very specific pandemic stressors that made this so unusual for people? Great question. So we had a number of pandemic-specific stressors that we included in the study, and we used a sort of a, a, mod, a horse race modeling approach to be able to pare that down to only the really important pandemic-related stressors. And those stressors that we included were kind of binary questions that allowed us to group people in different categories of what you would call maybe ideographic risk or personal individual risk. They were immunocompromised conditions for the healthcare worker emergency responder themse for themselves, immunocompromised condition that a household member has, having direct patient contact. The third was having direct patient contact with potentially infected individuals. Uh, and then the last was being in a managerial role uh, and that was one of those contextual factors with all of the changing information and guidelines and sort of the, 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 the political strife involved in this. A lot of local leadership uh, and managers had to step up and make choices without much information. Uh, so putting them in a high stress position. And then I, I'm gonna add the fifth factor that we actually included, which was we wanted to create an objective disease measure that was able to put everybody, since we were measuring people from two different counties, we wanted to be able to put everybody on, uh, on, on a common variable that quantified the number of cases 
in the county that they were in on the day that they completed the survey. And we called it objective disease spread, which is basically an objective measure of sort of uh, the, the environmental stress conditions that a person finds themselves in. The other thing that I noticed that jumped out at me is after you did the survey, which was self-selected, right? Of the 579 responses that came back that were included in the final analysis out of, I think it said 728, there were 98 hospital staff and 473 emergency personnel. And the, the largest group of that group were 400, 401 firefighters. And I'm wondering how that, their answers were reflected in the results if they were different from the other groups. Yeah, so great question. The, um, we actually started our analysis and um, splitting law enforcement, firefighters, and healthcare workers into three separate categories. And our findings showed that, that by and large, there weren't significant differences in particular between uh, firefighters and law enforcement officers. So we were able to use statistical uh, evidence to collapse those those categories into into one group. Mm -hmm. And then because healthcare workers also didn't differ from emergency responders on the majority of our outcome measures, again, our outcome measures were PTSD symptoms, anxiety, depression, alcohol use, and off-duty or off-shift sleep. Uh, the only factor, I believe, on which uh, emergency responders collapsed firefighters and law enforcement, uh, the only factor on which emergency responders differed from healthcare workers was, was sleep. So we were able to kind of collapse those groups ultimately for our, for our predictive analyses using that statistical evidence for collapsing. Since they didn't differ significantly, we were able to, to have more power in our sample instead of breaking our analyses into groups of 470 and 100 respectively across those three groups, we were able to put them together so that we could take a really good look at, at these predictors or uh, pandemic related stressors uh, that we just talked about, those four stressors, five stressors in the prediction of these outcomes for the whole sample. So the only thing that differed for the first responders were the issues with sleep, given, I guess, the shift nature of their work, the unpredictability of schedules, that sort of thing. Well, yeah, and that's unlikely to be particularly pandemic related. We've known for many, many years that circadian rhythm disruptions that come from doing shift work, being up 48 hours and then going home for four days and then coming back for another shift and then taking overtime shifts in between, as you age, that does a number on a circadian rhythm and creates problems with getting continuous or quality sleep. So we're not, we weren't particularly surprised that that was the significant difference that showed up between healthcare workers who were getting on average better sleep than emergency responders. Were you surprised by the risky alcohol use that was self-reported? I think it said 30% of emergency personnel and 36% of healthcare workers reported their, their alcohol use was higher. I'll say that we've been observing that phenomenon since the start of the pandemic throughout at least the United States is increased alcohol use. So we weren't expecting it to be, to be nothing. 
I suppose that the healthcare worker rates were higher than we expected by quite a bit. I also suppose that the emergency responder rates aren't drastically different than, than they are in baseline typical times. Um, and that has a lot to do with the way that alcohol gets used in those communities uh, to, as a sort of a cultural um, center point at times, as well as uh, the way that alcohol gets used as a really effective short-term anxiety reduction strategy. It also gets used when circadian rhythms are disrupted. So that uh, with this myth that more out, you know, when I drink alcohol, it helps me fall asleep, um, which it does, but it also prevents deep sleep. So we weren't particularly shocked at the at the emergency responder rates, but the healthcare rates were eye-opening for sure. And this is Utah. So there are some strange rules around alcohol and culture here. My guess is that those rates could be higher and we're always um, monitoring some under-reporting here in Utah on alcohol use. Because perhaps if you come from a religious background, you don't want to admit it, that sort yeah, of thing? Maybe. Yeah, maybe. And it's, it's just not, it's, it's just culturally different in, in Utah based on the, the dominant, some of the dominant cultural features here. Yeah, religious features. So one of the conclusions or I guess a call to action you and your co-authors mentioned is calling for an investment in evidence-based interventions, specifically, I think, around alcohol use or I guess general mental health help. Are there factors in emergency personnel or in healthcare that get in the way of individuals from seeking help when they need it? Maybe barriers that other people in other professions don't have? Well, that's I, I, I think if you're a helper in the in the first responding industry, whether that's a healthcare worker or emergency responder, seeking help for yourself is it there is some stigma associated with that. There's also this thing that emergency responders or first responders tend to do, and that is in order to kind of get up the the biological capacity, I guess you could say to do really stressful, hard work, to see the worst kinds of things, you know, bodies on the side of the highway, overdoses, um, deaths in the emergency room, to be able to handle and manage that and keep going to work day after day. Some turning off of your emotional reactivity, your emotional reactions is required. And so I think there's, there, there, there's a tendency towards numbness and there's a tendency towards towards pushing things until, until the last minute to ask for help. And we know from, for example, the depression literature, the sooner that somebody seeks help in a depressive episode, again, to use that as an example, the, the less likely it is that they'll have a, another depressive episode recur in the future, the less likely it is that, um, or, or the more likely it is that they'll be able to have that depressive episode that they're currently in be treated uh, in a and an end in a quicker period of time, so it's important to seek help. But the stigma um, and the the sort of biological necessities of doing stressful, traumatic, potentially traumatic work prevent folks from from reaching out uh, in time before there's before it's caused a bunch of wreckage. You also mentioned that there was an inverse association between the number of positive COVID-19 cases and anxiety, that anxiety fell as cases 
increased. Can you explain why that might be the case? For instance, is it because, um, you know, emergency personnel and healthcare workers, when their adrenaline gets ramped up and they're in the thick of it, there's maybe no time to be anxious, but in that pre-period, when people were watching what was going on in, you know, say New York, New Jersey, where I am, there was just too much time to think. And then once it got worse, there was no time to think. Yeah, I mean, I think your insights are already really, really going down the right vein of thinking with this. The What you're talking about is, is I think, again, this anticipatory phase, which is this unique moment in time that we captured these samples. Before there were a lot of cases, and while curve flattening efforts were doing their job in, in a place like Salt Lake County or El Paso County, we were watching the war zone in New York City from here. We were preparing the hospital. By we, I mean the, the healthcare providers, uh, you know, in the school of medicine, kind of a watch and wait, a hurry up and wait kind of mentality. Knowing that something's coming, but not being sure exactly uh, how bad it's going to be. So we're anticipating this thing and then cases start to trickle in. And you go from anticipating the worst to realizing that, you know, with the right infrastructure and organizational support, of course, those things matter a lot. You know, being well prepared matters a lot to the extent that you can be, I'm sure. But when those cases start to trickle in, you go from anticipating the worst to grounding yourselves in the mission, in the skill set that you have and have always had. Um, And there's something invigorating about that potentially. So we think about it as kind of a honeymoon period. Uh, and that's a, that's a model that, that um, SAMHSA has posted, which is in the beginning of an event, we have this sort of uptick in, in well-being and, and meaning and mission. But as a disaster carries on, you know, the, the answer to this question is gonna, is gonna only be known over time. So this is where our longitudinal design is so critical for answering questions beyond what's the risk rate and what are some of the what are some of the early predictors. It is as the disease fluctuates and ebbs and flows up and down, and we have a first wave and a second wave, and and this second wave that's lasted for a very long time, people start to get disillusioned and burned out. There are political tensions. There are people, you know, healthcare workers headed to work seeing, seeing anti-maskers, uh, you know, people saying thank you for your service while the healthcare worker is heading up to, to go to work and the thank you for your service person. Maybe they're wearing their mask, maybe they're not. And, and the experience for the healthcare provider or the emergency responder is, is likely to be a pretty alienating one at, at the moment. Since you mentioned... Um the longitudinal nature of this study, is this something you plan on repeating or with a larger sample size, um, especially as the cases have have increased where you are? Yeah, so we, the the paper that we published, uh, I guess a month or two ago with the sample that you and I started talking about, that's our smaller sample and we really, we only captured that sample at, at a couple of time points and didn't successfully recruit the longitudinal numbers that we wanted to in it. We have a larger study that we're about to submit with about 2,800 healthcare providers specifically, not emergency responders, um, that's, that's really tailored to healthcare providers 
and it uh, we have data on that group across six time points collected monthly from April uh, through October. And we cl we've closed up data collection and um, we're going to launch a follow-up survey, hopefully in April or May of 2021. That's at least the, the, the prospective design. That's how we wanted to do it. So it's, it's over time that you learn these things. It isn't, it isn't with these snapshot cross-sectional studies like the one you and I are talking about. And lastly, what are some things that healthcare systems or maybe even municipalities, if they employ first responders, which most do, what can they do differently for their employees? Well, that could think, maybe be another podcast episode, yeah. but that could be a longer answer, I realize. But I think the question of interventions is, um, is a complicated one. Um, I think creating interventions at all different access points is really critical or, or utilizing interventions at all different access points. Meaning uh, it's possible that a busy nurse who's going home to his or her family um, in between shifts is not gonna have the time to engage in a traditional 12 sessions of trauma-focused psychotherapy or something like that, but that they might use an app on their phone to practice mindfulness related to their trauma and stress. Um, so things that are freely and easily available, um, you know, studying those and bringing those uh, into attention and availability for folks is really key. I'll say that in the larger study that we're, we're getting ready to submit um, and in the study that, that we're talking about here today with emergency personnel in particular, um, the notion of immunocompromised status has really emerged as a critical variable in predicting um, increased odds for, for, mental, for mental health risk for probable diagnoses. And that is, if a healthcare provider or emergency responder either themselves has a, an immunocompromised condition or a, a household member has an immunocompromised condition, that person is at nearly twice the risk for a mental health um, and in some cases more than twice the risk for a mental health, a stress-related mental health problem. So one of the things that we are weighing in on uh, is the notion that maybe we should be considering healthcare providers and emergency responders, family members as priorities for vaccinations. That if we want to sort of bridge the gap between now and years from now when we're gonna see kind of burnout and mental health problems really have their effect. Uh, if we wanna create an opportunity for healthcare workers to have endurance, to persevere through this, then we might consider moving their family members up on the, up on the priority list for vaccinations. That's an interesting point. I think in your results, I think it said almost 25% of healthcare workers themselves had a condition and the rest had a family member with an immunocompromised uh, status. Yeah, I, you know, I, off the top of my head, it's a hard number to, to exactly come up with, but something around 40% of the folks in our larger healthcare worker sample, either themselves or their family member has an immunocompromised condition. Those are people that are at really high risk right now for being under a lot of stress carrying this uh, infection home to their families. If we want to encourage their endurance and, and show that we're committed to the the longevity of healthcare providers, oh, which by the way, has 
has really important economic and sort of existential and healthcare system longevity and functioning implications, then we should consider taking care of their family members in the same way that we take care of them. Well, thank you so much for talking about this today. I really appreciate it. I think it's a really important topic. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a real pleasure. All right. Take care. All right. See ya. Bye. To learn more about this issue, visit AGMC.com or see the show notes. To get in touch with us, email info at AGMC.com or follow us on Twitter at AGMC underscore journal. And if you like the podcast, don't forget to subscribe and rate us.